Good evening, everyone. Lovely to see you. Um, and to speak on Thomas Cranmer in Cranmer House. And there's a certain uh, niceness to that. Um, the, the plan is uh, to talk for maybe 45, 50 minutes, see how, see how you're going. Just so if, if you're looking at your watches, you're wondering how restless to become. Um, so uh, I want to introduce you really to Cranmer's theological priorities and then we can have some questions and conversation um, after some of these things. Um, but let me begin by reminding you of uh, the context, which I hope is fairly familiar. Henry VIII, uh, England's uh, great Renaissance king, initiated the start of the English Reformation 500 years ago or so. And he was a, a very capable sportsman. Uh, he was an athlete, a linguist, a lover of literature and fine foods uh, and beautiful women, uh, of course, uh, and also uh, something of a theologian. Uh, particular interest in the Christian faith of the English-speaking people. And during Henry's reign, uh, the Reformation in England just took a few tentative steps forward. Uh, the Bible in English, as we were remembering this morning, uh, the break with Rome, the dissolution of the monasteries. But under Henry, it was really a case of two steps forward and one step back, because the, the king was rather ambiguous, rather ambivalent about how much he really wanted to embrace uh, Bible theology, which was sweeping through Europe and changing the face of Christendom. Henry, really, uh, was more interested in securing the Tudor dynasty, uh, probably, than securing uh, a, a Bible kingdom. He really wanted it to be a Tudor kingdom. In London, uh, we have the National Portrait Gallery. I don't know if you can see these images uh, up on the screen, uh, but this is a, a famous one of Henry VIII. Uh, here he is on his deathbed, and he's pointing to his young son, and successor who's going to become uh, Edward uh, VI and in the background up here we have the trappings of old religion uh, being taken down uh, and the Pope in the middle uh, with, uh, who's being squashed by a big Bible uh, and uh, the words say uh, from the prophet Isaiah all flesh is like grass but the word of the Lord endureth forever um, and as the, uh, the monks here on the left uh, depart back to Italy uh, so this new group of uh, Reformation officials uh, take authority uh, in the kingdom, the, 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 the new king's uh, Reformation advisors. So back in 1547, uh, when Henry VIII died, uh, he left the kingdom in a precarious position, both politically and religiously. Edward was only nine years old uh, when he became the king of England, and the precedent was not very encouraging. Uh, England's only previous boy king... Uh, Edward V uh, only reigned for two months and then his uncle deposed him. Do you remember the story of the princes in the tower? Uh, well, that, that's what had happened to the previous boy king, murdered uh, by his uncle. Here we have another boy king uh, and his uncle uh, takes power. Edward uh, Seymour, the Duke of Somerset, uh, granted near sovereign powers as Lord Protector. But Somerset and this new Regency Council make it clear that their loyalties lie unambiguously uh, with Bible Christianity uh, and with Reformation theology. Uh, in those days, what was called evangelicalism. I know that's a word that uh, has lots of different meanings in different contexts. In the 16th century, uh, it means the people of the evangel, uh, the people of the good news. This was the label for the new kingdom. And from Geneva in Switzerland, uh, John Calvin encouraged Somerset. Uh, this is the age of salvation uh, when God's word has been revealed. 
uh, and he urged the Lord Protector advance and improve the Reformation and give it permanence. And at Edward's coronation, uh, Westminster Abbey uh, in uh, 1547, Archbishop Thomas Cranmer, our hero for the night, uh, he called the new king the second Josiah, the new Josiah. Uh, these reformers love to look back to the Old Testament for characters that they liken to their own royal family. Um, so Henry VIII was likened to King David, uh, the, the, the new King David. Uh, they said Edward was the new Josiah. Uh, Queen Elizabeth they called the new Deborah. Remember the, the godly uh, female leader of God's people in the book of Judges. Uh, Queen Mary uh, they called the new Jezebel. Uh, <laughs> Uh, less, less polite. Uh, but at the coronation service, Cranmer likens this boy king to Josiah. Uh, what do we learn about Josiah in the Old Testament? Uh, 2 Kings chapters 22 and 23. He's a boy king uh, who begins young, uh, but he's devoted to the ways of the Lord. Uh, and in the Old Testament, Josiah cleanses the temple. You remember he rediscovers the scriptures, uh, the book of the law, he destroys idolatry, the Asherah poles and the shrines and the high places are cut down and he reforms the worship of Israel, uh, the people of God, leading them back to God himself. So at this coronation service in Westminster Abbey, uh, the Archbishop of Canterbury is saying to the king, this is going to be uh, God's model for you, or God's call on your life and this kingdom. Uh, we want to be a godly kingdom uh, as in the days of Josiah. And Edward had none of his dad's ambivalence to the Reformation. He put his full energies into building an evangelical kingdom. And he gave reformers like Cranmer a free hand to bring in Bible theology into England in just a few short years. Cranmer had already been Archbishop for 15 years under Henry and had rather kept his, his head below the parapet. But under Edward, he comes forward much more boldly and has a very decisive impact. And you can show... Uh, you can see his increasing confidence in Reformation uh, publicity by the amount of facial hair uh, that uh, Thomas Cranmer has. Uh, ha have you noticed these, uh, th this pattern? Um, th this is Thomas Cranmer in the last year of, Edward, uh, of uh, Henry VIII. So he's uh, smoothly shaven. Uh, this is Thomas Cranmer in the first or second year of Edward VI and he's grown a proper Reformation beard. This is the way in which the, the theologians declared publicly uh, where they stood on these matters. If you've been to Geneva, uh, there's a, a famous Genevan monument went up in the 1910s and this has got John Knox and John Calvin and Theodore Beza uh, and they've all got uh, the, these, these giant beards uh, upon them. So Cranmer is now much more boldly coming forward and he says he's going to work uh, away at the theology and ministry of the Church of England uh, relay its foundations and, and he uh, in those years uh, does re-establish the Church of England on new lines uh, and therefore English speaking Christianity uh, from there right around the globe uh, the, the theology and practice of the, the Anglican Church uh, which has become the Anglican Communion. And I know Episcopalianism, of course, uh, is part of that. So in the Church of England today, uh, we have three historic formularies. Uh, the 39 Articles of Religion, uh, the Book of Common Prayer, and the Ordinal. 
which is uh, the book for ordaining deacons, priests and bishops. And all those three Reformation texts are uh, derived from Thomas Cranmer. Every time a, a clergy person in the Church of England is ordained, they have to assent to their loyalty to those Reformation documents. Every time you move to a new parish, or if you're installed as a licensed lay preacher, you have to say, yes, Cranmer's texts, uh, that is the theological inheritance uh, that I want to, to honour uh, in the contemporary church today. I'm not quite sure how it works in America. I gather you've got the 39 articles. Uh, I don't know how much they're in, in public evidence, uh, but they're certainly one of the, the Anglican Communion's historic formularies. Cranmer dies, you remember, uh, in 1556. He's burnt in a ditch uh, just outside Oxford. Uh, but his theology has had a massive impact far beyond his own generation, not just in the 16th century, uh, but even now in the present. And his legacy continues uh, in the Anglican Communion around the world today. What I'd simply like us to do this evening is to dig a bit more deeply into Cranmer's theology and his priorities. What are the key things that this Archbishop wants to say to the Church? Uh, well, two major theological discoveries of the Reformation era about the Christian message that Cranmer wants to fix upon the minds of every English-speaking Christian. Something about the way in which God speaks and uh, the way in which God saves. Um, simply remember it this way. Cranmer says to the church, keep the word of God central and keep the grace of God central. If you just want to remember two things about Cranmer, just remember those two things. Keep the word of God central and keep the grace of God central. Let me illustrate them a little bit from Cranmer's own experience. Keep the word of God central is his first message to us uh, today. One of the great Reformation discoveries was the way in which God speaks to his people through the scriptures. So how can I know the true God? And how can I know about his character and his purpose and his plan for the church? and for the world, and for my uh, individual life. And where do we go for the answers? Uh, the English reformers point to the Bible uh, as the very pure word of God, and they say that's where you need to go uh, if you want to hear God speak. They loved their Latin mottos, didn't they, in those days? Uh, and they coined that phrase, sola scriptura, only the Bible, uh, as the authority for the church. If you were uh, there this morning, uh, we were remembering William Tyndale, first English Bible translator. He's uh, garroted and burnt at the stake in 1536, but he prays, Lord, open the King of England's eyes. And just two years later, uh, you have the English Bible made uh, freely available uh, throughout the country. And Cranmer writes that preface as Archbishop, uh, famously, uh, saying, immerse yourself in the Scriptures. Better to have a Bible in your house than all the treasures in the kingdom. Uh, the, the, the thing to, uh, to honour, the thing to protect and cherish, not your treasure chest of gold and silver, not the jewellery case. Uh, it is uh, the Bible in your own tongue. A few years later, 1547, uh, Cranmer publishes the famous Book of Homilies, uh, which is a collection of a dozen model Anglican sermons expounding Reformation theology. Uh, Gerald Bray, I know sir, well known amongst you. He's just produced uh, the best critical edition of the homilies for 150 years. 
Um, so uh, do get uh, Gerald to, to talk to you about it. But in the, in the very first homily, this, uh, this model sermon written by Cranmer, it's an exaltation on the power of Scripture. And the Archbishop says this, As drink is pleasant to those who are thirsty, and meat to those who are hungry, so is the reading, hearing, searching, and studying of Holy Scripture to those who want to know God and to do his will. He calls the Bible food for the soul and urges his hearers. This book, therefore, ought to be much in our hands as we hold it, in our eyes as we read it, in our ears, in our mouths as we proclaim it, but most of all in our hearts. And Cranmer says if you want to know about the way of salvation, how to be right with God, don't go running, uh, in his words, to the stinking puddles of human traditions devised by imagination, uh, human imagination, but come to the fountain of life uh, in the Old and New Testaments. Not the stinking puddles, uh, but the fountain of life. And he ends with these famous words. Let us with fear and reverence lay up in the chest of our hearts these necessary and fruitful lessons in the Bible. Let us night and day muse and have meditation and contemplation in them. Let us ruminate and, as it were, chew the cud that we may have the sweet juice, the spiritual effect, the marrow, the honey, the kernel, the taste, the comfort and the consolation of them. For the scripture of God is the heavenly meat of our souls. The hearing and keeping of it maketh us blessed, sanctifies us, makes us holy. It turns our souls. It's a light lantern to our feet. It's a sure, steadfast, everlasting instrument of salvation. It gives wisdom to the humble and lowly hearted. It comforts, makes glad, cheers, cherishes our consciences. In other words, Cranmer is saying in this model sermon, he discovered when he became archbishop, Uh, that most of the priests in the Church of England couldn't preach. Uh, And those who could preach uh, didn't really know what to say. Uh, So the purpose of this book of homilies was to be circulated uh, to every parish in the country, uh, and when the minister's not sure what to say on a a Sunday morning, they would simply uh, proclaim the sermon that the Archbishop himself had written. Uh, And uh, he he wants this, therefore, to be multiplied uh, in all these parishes for congregations to know the Bible is God's instrument uh, to convert people to faith in Jesus Christ. And it brings assurance uh, of salvation, transforms our characters, creates mature churches, changes cultures uh, and nations. In a later generation, uh, among uh, the Baptists, uh, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, famous Baptist preacher uh, in London, uh, speaking of John Bunyan, Uh, another famous Baptist, Um, he he puts it like this of Bunyan, prick him anywhere, his blood is bibline. The very essence of the Bible flows from him. Uh, And Spurgeon uses the example of a mosquito. Uh, If you you squeeze a mosquito, you can find out uh, whose blood it's been feeding on. That's that's what will sort of come out of this little animal. And he says it should be the same for the Christian. When When you prod the Christian... Uh, what sort of ideas are flowing from them? What sort of language is using? What's their, what's their worldview? If we're feeding on the scriptures, uh, then a scriptural worldview should be one that uh, is embracing uh, our whole lives and just naturally flows forth. Thomas Cranmer would agree uh, yeah, with uh, Charles Haddon Spurgeon. We see that again and again and again in the classic Reformation text that he's putting together uh, for the English church and uh, the, the Anglican communion. Uh, So take, for example, the 39 Articles of Religion, doctrinal basis 
uh, for many Anglicans around the world. And it's a central plank of uh, his Reformation strategy. Uh, still one of the statutes of the Church of England. Here's, uh, here's a couple of the articles. Article 5. Uh, perhaps you know these off by heart. <coughs> Let me remind, remind you of Article 5. Holy Scripture containeth all things necessary to salvation, so that whatsoever is not read therein, nor may be proved thereby, is not to be required of any man that it should be believed as an article of faith. If you want to know about salvation, if you want to know how to be saved, uh, the Anglican doctrinal basis says, go to the Bible uh, for the answers. What about Article 8, uh, which is about the creeds? Uh, what is our rule of faith as Anglicans? And well, Cranmer says, we acknowledge the Nicene Creed. That's good, the Apostles' Creed, the Athanasian Creed. Uh, but they're not the rule of faith. The rule of faith is the Bible. Uh, and these creeds, uh, they ought thoroughly to be received and believed because they may be proved by most certain warrants of Holy Scriptures. Uh, why do we stand up and proclaim the Apostles' Creed uh, on a Sunday morning? Not because that in itself is our authority, but because those things are taught in the Bible, uh, which is the authority for uh, the Anglican Christian. Or, or one more, Article 20, uh, cause of authority of the Church. Central importance in uh, some of our controversial conversations around the Communion uh, in recent years uh, puts it like this. The Church hath power to decree rites or ceremonies and authority in controversies of faith, and yet it is not lawful for the church to ordain anything that is contrary to God's word written. Neither may it so expand one place of scripture that it may be repugnant to another. Again and again and again in the 39 articles, get the message coming through. Uh, keep the word of God central. I brought with me, uh, all the way from England, uh, my little, little prayer book. Um, and uh, this is the one that we use in our village church. Uh, on, a, on a Sunday morning um, and uh, certainly at our more traditional services. In here you'll find all those three formularies. You'll find the 39 Articles of Religion, the Ordinal uh, and uh, the Book of Common Prayer, uh, Cranmer's uh, Liturgy. It's only a little book, uh, really a tiny little book, but it's had a massive impact upon Anglican uh, thinking right around the globe. John Wesley, again in a later generation, the great uh, Methodist leader of the 18th century, uh, once wrote, I believe there is no liturgy in the world, either in ancient or modern language, which breathes of a more solid, scriptural, rational piety than the common prayer of the Church of England. Or Charles Simeon, uh, this uh, preacher up here on, uh, on the right, uh, famous preacher in Victorian Cambridge in the 19th century. He, he loves uh, Cranmer's prayer book. And he once preached a whole series of sermons before the University of Cambridge entitled The Excellency of the Liturgy. Uh, in other words, The Excellency of uh, Cranmer's uh, book. And Simeon proclaimed that the finest sight short of heaven would be a whole congregation using the prayers of the liturgy in the true spirit of them. Um, he would go to a Church of England church or an Anglican church where this was happening and think, well, this is, this, surely this is a foretaste of heaven. I wonder if it feels like that sometimes uh, on a Sunday morning. Hopefully it does. One of my recent projects has been uh, researching uh, the, the history of John Charles Ryle, uh, who was a great fan of the Reformers. Uh, he was the first Bishop of Liverpool. And uh, all his, uh, his manuscripts have disappeared for 70 years. Um, and I had the great delight 
um, a few months ago of tracking them down with uh, one of his great-great-grandchildren. Um, and there's a, a box of um, some of his handwritten texts, but also uh, the, the Royal Family Bible. And uh, very typical uh, in England in those days, uh, you had the Bible and the Book of Common Prayer bound together as a single volume. Perhaps if you've got a really old Bible in your house, maybe it has those two things together and they've written all uh, the family details on blank uh, pages in the front. It makes tremendous sense uh, putting the Bible and the Book of Common Prayer together because the Book of Common Prayer is, is telling us all the time, keep the scripture central. Uh, it's full of scripture. The prayer book encourages systematic reading and preaching of the Bible. In the Middle Ages, uh, if you went to church, uh, the, the readings would be in Latin, uh, which very few people understood. Uh, sometimes short little Bible passages, but sometimes other religious texts as well uh, would be uh, interwoven. Uh, but uh, Cranmer says, no, in church, what we're going to read is the Bible. Uh, and we're, not, we're going to read it sequentially, continuous reading, what they used to call Lectio Continua. Uh, that, that reflects the reformers' understanding of the way in which God speaks. God doesn't speak to us with uh, a few isolated verses uh, dropped at random. God speaks to us through whole books of the Bible uh, with, uh, with very distinct uh, messages, coherent messages, specific pastoral purpose. So in, in Cranmer's church, if you went with him to morning and evening prayer uh, every day, uh, during the course of a year, you would hear almost the whole of the Old Testament read from beginning to end. Uh, you would hear the New Testament read twice over uh, and you would hear the 150 Psalms read through every single month uh, if you were going to uh, prayer book services. Uh, if you come across uh, Robert Murray McShane's Bible reading calendar, uh, very popular certainly in, in uh, Scotland and reform circles uh, from the 1840s onwards, continuous reading. Well, McShane doesn't invent it. Cranmer gets there first as to these reformers. Uh, putting the, the, the word of God out there for the congregations. And it doesn't only encourage Bible reading, it also models Bible praying. In Cranmer's liturgy, we respond to God in prayers which express, express Bible truths, uh, but ones which use Bible words. Have you noticed that when you uh, listen to people in the Bible praying, they often pray uh, using scripture. So uh, think of Nehemiah, uh, Nehemiah uh, chapter 9, that very long prayer that he prays. It's really a patchwork of verses elsewhere uh, in the Bible, uh, which he's uh, taking in and, and then praying out to the Lord. Same is true of Hannah uh, in the book of 1 Samuel, or in the New Testament, the Virgin Mary uh, and Zechariah and Simeon. When they pray, they, they do so with words from the Bible, deep, rich, passionate praying. Uh, and Cranmer says, that's a brilliant principle. I'm going to try and fix the Bible in the minds of Anglican Christians uh, through the liturgy uh, on a Sunday morning. Uh, fix the, the Bible upon their lips uh, and uh, within their hearts. Uh, Charles Simeon, again, in that uh, wonderful series of, of sermons on the excellency of the liturgy 200 years ago, he challenges his hearers, uh, record uh, the extemporaneous, spontaneous praying that you hear in church over the next 12 months. Um, and then uh, after a year, compare the sorts of things that have been prayed off the cuff with the sorts of things uh, that are prayed in the liturgy um, and just uh, see what sort of pattern uh, emerges. He expects that 
in most congregations, uh, liturgical praying will be uh, very deeply uh, biblical in its theology and resonance, more so than uh, some of our extempore praying um, could be. He goes on a trip to Scotland, um, and uh, there's a lot of extempore praying by ministers in the Scottish Kirk. Uh, and uh, Simeon returns home to Cambridge and exclaims, uh, thank God we in England have a liturgy. Uh, he says sp- spontaneous praying um, is good, and if the minister is immersed in the Bible, then they're going to pray extemporaneously in a Bible way. Uh, but how good it is also to have written prayers which are full of Bible truth uh, and Bible words. So uh, c- consider some famous examples. Uh, these will be very familiar to you. Uh, but uh, the versicles and responses, do you still say the versicles and responses um, in Alabama? Perhaps not, but uh, you, you might remember uh, these, uh, these words. O Lord, open thou our lips, and our mouth shall show forth thy praise. That's from the Bible. Uh, that's Psalm 51. O God, make speed to save us. O Lord, make haste to help us. That's Psalm 38. O Lord, show thy mercy upon us and grant us thy salvation. Psalm 85. O Lord, save thy people and bless thine inheritance. Psalm, eight, Psalm 28. O God, make clean our hearts within us and take not, our Holy, uh, take not thy Holy Spirit from us. Psalm 51. Again, very familiar uh, to... Uh, Episcopalian and Anglican churches, and you pray these Sunday by Sunday by Sunday, you're actually praying the Bible uh, when you're praying those things. Most of the canticles in the prayer book, again, are straight from the Bible. The Venite. Oh, come, let us sing unto the Lord. Let us heartily rejoice in the strength of our salvation. That's Psalm 95. The Benedictus. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, for he's visited us and redeemed his people. It's Luke 1. Of course, the Jubilate, uh, Psalm 100. At evening prayer, it's the same. The Magnificat, Luke, uh, Luke 1. The Nunc Dimittis, Luke 2. The Cantate Domino, Psalm 98. The Deus uh, Miserata, uh, Psalm 67. And likewise, the famous Easter anthem you get in the Anglican liturgies. Christ, our Passover, uh, is sacrificed for us. It's a skillful weaving together of Bible verses from Romans uh, and 1 Corinthians. And even those one or two canticles which don't come directly from the Bible uh, are uh, full of Bible words and Bible truths, the Te Deum, uh, the Benedicite. Or, or think of your, your prayer book collects. I noticed we had a collect this morning. I guess you do uh, most weeks. Well, when Cranmer is writing his collects, he wants them to be full of, of Bible ideas. The collect for the second Sunday in Advent. Blessed Lord, who caused all scripture to be written for our learning, grant that we may in such wise hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that by patience and comfort of thy holy word, we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of eternal life, which thou hast given us in our Saviour Jesus Christ. Well, that's uh, 2 Timothy chapter 3, that's Ezekiel chapter 3, that's Romans chapter 15, uh, woven into a prayer. Uh, or what about the collect for uh, St. Simon and St. Jude's Day, 28th of October? Wonderful prayer. It's based on Ephesians chapter 2. O Almighty God, who has built thy church upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the head cornerstone, grant us so to, to be joined together in unity of spirit by their doctrine that we may be made an holy temple acceptable unto thee through Jesus Christ our Lord. When you're hearing your collects every Sunday morning, why not just try and work out... Uh, which part of the Bible does this prayer come from? It, it, it always will be, uh, if it's, uh, certainly if it's uh, one of the prayer book collects. If you want a little bit more on these themes, 
uh, get hold of Peter Adams' booklet uh, published by the Latimer Trust. It's called uh, The Very Pure Word of God, The Book of Common Prayer as a Model of Biblical Liturgy. Uh, lots of good things in there and uh, much of what I'm sharing with you this evening um, is, is borrowed from Peter Adam. Um, some, he's got plenty of good insights. But it doesn't just transform this principle uh, for Cranmer, his doctrine and his liturgy. It also transforms the whole purpose of ordained ministry uh, in the English church, the priorities of the Christian minister. It's a deliberate shift of emphasis under Thomas Cranmer, away from a sacerdotal ministry uh, to a preaching and pastoral ministry instead. So if you were ordained as a priest in the medieval church, you would be given as the symbols of your office a chalice and a pattern. So a communion cup and a communion plate. Uh, under Thomas Cranmer, and uh, in the Anglican world ever since, at least by the prayer book, uh, you are now given a Bible on your ordination day. Very deliberately, Cranmer is saying this is the symbol of your office because this is what your job is about as an ordained minister, to be pastoring people with the word of God. One-to-one, uh, -one, small group, house-to-house, -house, uh, as well, of course, uh, in the congregation. He exhorts uh, the new ordinance to be messengers, watchmen and stewards of the Lord, people who are going to proclaim the gospel, pastor the flock with the scriptures. Here's a wonderful woodcut. Again, I'm sorry if you can't quite see it over there in the corner, uh, but this is a, a wonderful woodcut uh, from Fox's Book of Martyrs of one of Cranmer's great friends, Bishop Latimer, preaching to the king. Uh, here is Latimer uh, in the pulpit. This is uh, Edward the, the Sixth up in the corner listening. Um, and it's a model of um, the word of God uh, being parceled out amongst the people. Uh, and the office of the bishop is to teach the Bible. That's what Latimer wants to do. So here we have uh, the, the whole congregation gathered. Uh, you see this young man here uh, with his, his ear open. He's listening into the preacher, wants to get closer. Uh, what's, what's he saying? Um, notice all there. I've trodden on the wire, probably. That's why it's going yellow. They, they've, they've got all their wonderful Reformation beards. Uh, this is a sign that they're a properly reformed congregation. Here we've got a young woman. Uh, who is sitting at the preacher's feet. Uh, but what is she doing? She's got a Bible open on her lap. Um, and she's checking out that what the preacher is saying is actually written uh, in the Word of God. He may be a senior minister. Uh, she's, she's a young member of the congregation. But she's got the Bible. Uh, she's checking it out, making sure uh, it matches up with what the Word of God has to say. In everything that he does... Archbishop Cranmer and his Reformation friends say to the Christian church, keep the word of God central. And don't just keep it central in your um, theoretical articulation, but actually it's shuffled off onto a side room in terms of the focus of the local church uh, or the priorities of the, of the ministers in the church. Make sure that it is, is central uh, in, in practice uh, in all that you're up to. Well, here's the second challenge. I'll be a, a, a briefer on the second point. This is the second thing uh, Cranmer has to say to uh, English-speaking Christians. It's to keep the grace of God central as well. First key question, how can I know the true God? Where do I look for the answers? Cranmer says, go to the Bible. 
but secondly, more importantly perhaps, we might ask, uh, how can I then have relationship with uh, this God of the Bible? How can I be friends with him? How can I have my sins forgiven? How can I find a place in heaven? Uh, to be put bluntly, as the Philippian uh, jailer asked Paul and Silas, remember Acts chapter 16, how can I be saved? If that's the question, uh, well, Cranmer says, run to the Lord Jesus Christ. Put your faith in him. Uh, receive uh, grace from him. The early Anglican reformers discover from the scriptures that salvation and the forgiveness of sins comes not from what we do for God, but what God has done for us through Jesus Christ. That we can't earn our salvation. We can't contribute anything uh, to the process. Uh, no sinful human priest can offer to God anything on our behalf. It's the death of Jesus Christ on the cross at Calvary 2,000 years ago, uh, which did it all. That's where salvation was won, uh, when Christ died in our place to uh, rescue us from the wrath of God. Cranmer discovers this in his, his theological reading and his diving into the Bible. And therefore, as archbishop, he wants to make sure that in all the things the church is doing, um, the grace of God is central. Sola Scriptura is one of their favourite mottos, but the, there's lots of other uh, parallel ones uh, that they're devising, of course. Sola Gratia, grace alone. Sola Fide, faith alone. Uh, in Christ uh, alone. So another of uh, Cranmer's homilies. If you read the one on, on Scripture, you can find all of these on the internet or in Gerald's book. Read the one on scripture. That's a great classic. Uh, but the next one you should read, uh, Hammers Home, this grace message. It's called The Salvation of Mankind by Only Christ Our Saviour from Sin and Death Everlasting. Written in uh, 1547. Let me just give you uh, two or three lines. Cranmer says, Justification, uh, which means the, the sinner being put right with God. Uh, justification is not the office of man, but of God. For man cannot make himself righteous by his own works, neither in part nor in whole. For that were the greatest arrogancy and presumption of man that Antichrist could set up against God to affirm that a man might, by his own works, take away and purge his own sin and so justify himself. But justification is the office of God only and is not a thing which we render unto him, but which we receive of him. Not which we give to him, but we take of him by his free mercy and by the only merits of his most dearly beloved Son, our Redeemer, Saviour and Justifier, Jesus Christ. And therefore, we must trust only in God's mercy and that sacrifice which our High Priest and our Saviour Christ Jesus, the Son of God, once offered for us upon the cross to obtain thereby God's grace. A model sermon for Anglican churches. He doesn't want it just to be preached in Lambeth Palace. He wants this to be disseminated right throughout the whole, uh, the whole nation. The grace of God. And if you return to the 39 Articles, again, you'll find uh, the same message. Article 11 uh, is uh, one of my favourites. Uh, this is one we ought to memorise. simply says this. We are accounted righteous before God only for the merits of our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ by faith and not for our own works or deservings. Wherefore, that we are justified by faith only is a most wholesome doctrine and very full of comfort. In other words, not just um, something we assent to intellectually, but something which is, uh, this, 
this news of the grace of God is, is balm for the soul. This is what the bruised and weary Christian needs to hear about the grace uh, of the Lord Jesus. John Rogers uh, calls the 39 articles a treasure chest of grace. And again and again, the articles are saying, where is that grace to be found? Where is that work done? Uh, it's done by Christ's death on the cross. Article 2, Jesus Christ was crucified, dead and buried to reconcile his father to us and to be a sacrifice. Article 15, Christ came to be a lamb without spots who by sacrifice of himself once made should take away the sins of the world. Article 18, Holy Scripture doth set out unto us only the name of Jesus Christ whereby men must be saved. And Article 31, the offering of Christ once made is that perfect redemption, propitiation and satisfaction for the sins of the whole world. And there is none other satisfaction for sin but that alone. And you won't be surprised to hear uh, when we come to the, the prayer book again, the same message is found. It's full of the word of God, but it's also jam-packed full uh, with this emphasis upon the grace of God. Every time you open the prayer book, uh, you will find that message uh, ringing in your ears. So when we confess our sins uh, and uh, we hear a powerful declaration of the promise of forgiveness for all those who are trusting uh, in Jesus Christ, the, the words are uh, written uh, from scratch by Thomas Cranmer in the 1550s. Uh, Almighty God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, desireth not the death of a sinner, but rather that he may turn from his wickedness and live. Uh, we're told that the Lord pardoneth and absolveth all them that truly repent and unfeignedly believe his holy gospel. Gregory Dix was a, uh, a liturgist, an Anglican liturgist in the mid-20th century. Uh, not a great fan of Cranmer's theology. Uh, it really more favoured the theology of the, the Church of Rome uh, than of Archbishop Cranmer. But he did say this about Cranmer's prayer book uh, in famous words. He says, Cranmer's communion office is the only effective attempt ever made to give liturgical expression to the doctrine of justification by faith alone. So everyone's trying it all the way around Europe. All the reformers in their churches are devising new liturgies. They've discovered the grace of God. And Cranmer says, I've got to find a way of putting that into my liturgy. So that is, that is hammered home to Christians uh, every morning and evening as they meet. Uh, or Ashley Null. I, I gather you having Ashley back again in the autumn. Uh, no doubt he'll, he'll talk uh, more on Cranmer. Ashley's a, an Alabama um, boy, is that right? He's got some, some, some roots here locally. Um, well, he, he, uh, uh, he writes this in his book on Cranmer, uh, that Cranmer's communion office is the ultimate expression of Cranmer's vision of God's gracious love inspiring grateful human love. And again and again, uh, through the service, uh, you will hear this message coming over loud and clear. Take, for example, uh, the prayer of humble access. This is a, a prayer that Cranmer himself uh, writes from scratch in the 1550s. And it's based upon that encounter in Matthew's Gospel uh, of uh, the Canaanite woman or the Syrophoenician woman uh, with the Lord Jesus Christ. And you remember how uh, she comes up to him and says that uh, she would gladly feed on the crumbs which fall from the master's table. 
Uh, this woman is, is not part of the, the covenant community. Uh, there is uh, nothing that she's done that deserves blessing uh, from God. She simply approaches Jesus with empty hands uh, looking for mercy uh, and we read that he commends her because of her great faith. A little bit gloomy, this picture. Uh, the original is, uh, is a sort of brighter canvas uh, in a museum in Amsterdam. But here we have the Canaanite woman uh, approaching Jesus. And there's some nice touches here. We've got some little boys in the corner who are actually eating bread rolls. Uh, the symbolism of, of feasting on the bread. Uh, a couple of dogs uh, playing in the foreground, uh, looking for the crumbs to hoover up. Well, Cranmer is reading the Bible and he reads this, this, this wonderful um, demonstration of the grace of God um, with uh, that encounter. He says, I'm going to put that into my, my prayer book. I'm going to get English Christians uh, praying that idea. We do not presume to come to this thy table, O merciful Lord, trusting in our own righteousness, but in thy manifold and great mercies. We are not worthy so much as to gather up the crumbs under thy table, but thou art the same Lord, whose property is always to have mercy. This Canaanite woman meets with grace. Uh, and so Cranmer wants Anglicans to be thinking of that uh, each time they meet as well. And the prayer of consecration, again, familiar words. They, they hammer home the same gospel message. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, who of thy tender mercy didst give thine only Son, Jesus Christ, to suffer death upon the cross for our redemption, who made there by his one oblation of himself once offered a full, perfect, sufficient sacrifice, oblation and satisfaction for the sins of the whole world. Sounds a little bit repetitive, uh, but Cranmer is trying to think of as many synonyms as he can uh, to emphasise the same points. One oblation, once offered, it's full, perfect, sufficient. Sacrifice, oblation, satisfaction. Uh, wanting to make it abundantly clear. It's not because of something that we offer. It's something that uh, God offers uh, to us. Nothing more can be added, nothing more is needed. No additional offering is possible. So at communion we approach... The Lord's Table, uh, in the attitude of uh, Augustus Toplady's hymn. We sang a sort of uh, modernised version of it this morning. Um, but uh, this, this is one of the, the great verses. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Naked, come to thee for dress. Helpless, look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly, wash me, Saviour, or I die. And you'll hear each Sunday morning as you gather around the Lord's table the words, draw near with faith. That's not meant to be a stage direction. That's not meant to say, okay, everyone, you can get out of your pews, um, draw near this way, come forward. Um, it's actually saying, draw near to God uh, with faith. Uh, it's again deliberately picking up Hebrews chapter 10, verse 22. Uh, Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith because the blood of Jesus has opened a way into the holy presence of God. Uh, here's a typical communion service uh, in the 16th century. They're all gathered around the Lord's table together. And uh, in those days, when they heard the invitation draw near, they were already around the table. Uh, they, they didn't actually have to move out of their seats. They're already there, but they're being told, uh, draw near to God uh, in faith. Put your faith in him. When the bread and wine uh, are, are given, 
uh, in the prayer book to the communicants. Uh, the same words come over. Take and eat this in remembrance that Christ has died for thee and feed on him in thy heart, not in thy, my, in, in thy mouth, in thy heart by faith uh, with great thanksgiving. Well, it's very straightforward, I'm afraid, this evening. It's not rocket science. Uh, these are, are things you know very well. Uh, but they're things that Cranmer wants uh, really to drive home to us. Uh, and uh, I, I put it to you that in this anniversary year of Reformation 500, Archbishop Cranmer still has a very contemporary message for Anglicans across the globe. How can we know about God and his will for our lives and our churches? Cranmer says, read the Bible. Keep the word of God central. Make sure that your pastors are keeping the word of God central. Uh, be, uh, um, prod them in that. Uh, how can we be in eternal relationship with God as part of the Lord's covenant community? Cranmer says, run to the Lord Jesus Christ, the only saviour. Keep the grace of God central in your proclamation uh, of the Christian message and in your congregational life. So Thomas Cranmer is a, a great liturgist and theologian, Archbishop uh, Christian Martyr, one of the greatest archbishops, I think, that the Anglican Communion has ever had. Been dead now for 450 years, uh, but his message is very contemporary. Uh, he says, don't be pushed off track, don't major on the minors, uh, be clear about the gospel priorities and keep them central, the, the word of God and the grace of God. Um, and I hope you'll agree, we can never have too, too much of those excellent gifts, the word of God and the grace of God. And when they are truly central, uh, then uh, that's the path of blessing for the local church. I'm going to stop there. Thank you very much. 7.47. So I'm keeping to time. Do we have an opportunity for, for questions or comments? Okay. So we, we've, we've got some time for, for conversation on these things. Please, jump in. So we get this wonderful liturgy and we get this wonderful theology. This is a complicated guy, right? I mean, Kramer is in the middle of a political firestorm, and he has to be incredibly shrewd uh, between navigating between the politics of Henry and then the minority of Edward, right? What lessons can we learn from that political shrewdness? That maybe the Bible isn't exactly point blank clear on when to shut our mouths and when to speak up. For instance, he didn't speak up when Anne Boleyn was taken to her execution. But he believed she was innocent. He's a complicated guy. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Can you speak to that? Or, is, or am I getting off the third rail here? Uh, no, that's a good question. Um, so, like everyone, um, Cranmer is a human being. Um, and uh, he is developing his theology and his role in his ministry as he goes along. Um, so he becomes Archbishop in 1532, 1533, almost by accident, never been a bishop before, um, is, is trying to work for this king who is uh, very unpredictable. You never know what Henry VIII is going to do next. Um, so whether you see him in Henry's reign as being a very shrewd operator who's waiting for his moment, or whether you see him as someone who's far too timid and cowardly, well, they, uh, you, you could read him in both ways. Um, so his great friend Hugh Latimer 
uh, resigns from his post under Henry VIII and says, um, as a bishop, I cannot work in the church if this is what the king is going to instruct me on, uh, and he leaves. Um, uh, Cranmer says, I-, I think we're under pressure here, but I think I could, I could work within this, and stays. Um, I think there's wisdom in both. Um, again, in terms of the development of Cranmer's theology, um, certainly in terms of his understanding of the Eucharist, it takes him quite a long time to come to a, a fully Reformation view. Um, that's probably through Ridley living in his house um, in the 1540s and really provoking him on that. So I don't think he was ready to write these doctrinal bases and prayer books in Henry's reign because he hadn't got there in his own mind theologically. Um, but it's a little bit, a little bit like um, Obadiah and Elijah in 1 Kings um, that um, both are needed. Uh, you need uh, the fiery prophet who will challenge the prophets of Baal to a duel. Um, but then there are also other folk that, that the Lord has working within the system. Um, yes, yeah, so I'm nervous of drawing a, a hard and fast lesson, but it's useful things to reflect on. Thank you. Please. want to argue that he is in his final years highly intentional so this is where I think the, um, the, the unshaved and bearded periods of his life um, you do see a change of tone uh, you see uh, a much greater public clarity in what he's trying to do um, and during Edward VIII's reign he only has five or six years um, but if you're to judge him by his writings um, he is trying to do something very deliberate. He has a strategy. Um, he's, he's not being haphazard, I don't think. Uh, during Henry VIII's reign, so the f- previous 15 years, much harder to tell. Um, and uh, perhaps his own theology is fluctuating. But under, in the last, uh, last time, I do think it is strategic. Um, he's producing articles of religion. He's producing liturgies. He's producing a new ordinal. He's producing a new set of sermons in the homilies. Um, he's producing new canon law for the English church, the Reformatio Ecclesiasticarum, um, which, which never came on the books because uh, Edward died. Um, so I think he knows what he's trying to do. 
Um, he also has a group of uh, advisors around him who are um, probably sharpening him up. Um, people who are a little bit a little bit feisty. So uh, the Bishop of London, Ridley, um, is a is a bold character and is pushing him. He has John Hooper, the Bishop of Gloucester. Um, in 1548-49, a lot of the Lutherans on the continent uh, were under pressure from the Holy Roman Empire and um, England is opened up as a place for religious refugees. A lot of these folk come over. So someone like Peter Vermigli Martyr uh, in Oxford, Martin Busser um, in Cambridge. And uh, they've done the stuff before in their local churches in Germany for the previous 20 years. So they come with an awful lot of experience of how to get from A to B. Um, and I think Cranmer is learning quite a lot from them. Um, so, yes, I, 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 I find it very hard to argue that he was haphazard after 1547. Um, clearly at the end, he, he quails, and uh, when he's under pressure to recant, and when he sees his brother bishops burnt alive, um, which is in long torture... Um, he does quail and his faith almost collapses at that point. So if he'd been burnt as um, having recanted, we would remember him in a very different way. Um, but I suppose he, um, he claims his legacy by turning the tables on the last day as he's being executed and he uses it more as a platform to proclaim the Reformation. Thank you. I think so. Um, but they're having to do a, a lot of work on um, obedience to those in authority and what that looks like. So one of the great criticisms of by the traditional, by the, the conservative church, the medieval church, if you like, of justification by faith alone, um, is they said, oh, this is going to be highly individualistic. Um, as soon as you tell people that they can have a personal relationship with God um, just one-to-one, -one, then there's going to be chaos. Everyone's going to be doing their own thing. Um, and uh, the reformers are quite keen on emphasising that actually Christian conversion will lead to obedience to those in authority. Uh, they, they preach through Romans 13 quite often. Um, one of Tyndale's famous tracts is called The Obedience of the Christian, uh, where he says uh, evangelical folk are, are going to... Yeah, they're going to be obedient. They're not going to be rebellious. And that's the track that Anne Boleyn gives to Henry and persuades Henry, oh, you know, he quite likes that idea of reformers being a, a obedient to him. Um, so perhaps for Cranmer, that would be the case. Um, uh, though others have sharper consciences with the same theology and are saying, well, I, I can't live within the system. Um, when Henry is ambivalent, you can manage it. When Mary is outright stopping the church, 
then it's, it's much more difficult. Um, so somebody like John Knox in Geneva is beginning to develop new ideas of resistance um, to those in authority. Um, if you remember his, his tract, the, uh, the Trumpet Blast Against the Monstrous Regiment of Women, uh, which is aimed at two Roman Catholic queens in England and, and Scotland. Um, but that never becomes mainstream Reformation teaching. There is that sort of revolutionary angle, but most of them are, are um, certainly obedient to the crown. And when they're, when they're dying at the stake, if, you, if anyone comes back tomorrow night, we're going to hear lots of stories from Fox's Book of Martyrs um, of some of these guys in their final moments. Um, they make it very clear that they want to be loyal to the crown, um, that they're, they're dying for their faith, but they don't have anything against the queen. That's a rambling answer. Um, you'll have to fill in some of the blanks for us later. Yeah, thank you. Cranmer's place in the world today, especially within Anglicanism, in the West, Cranmer is seen uh, and or appreciated more as being a liturgist, and Anglicanism and its liturgy uh, being more of, a, of an aesthetic consideration rather than considering its content and what kind of message it's trying to convey. And so, hmm. especially in the Episcopal Church, they have very pretty services hmm. uh, on a whole, but pretty empty. Uh, otherwise. What do you see in the communion in Cranmer's place today, especially in the use of, of a Reformation liturgy? Hmm. I, I think the reason his liturgy has lasted um, is because of its theological content, um, not because it happens to ha have beautiful words. But I don't think anyone in the 1550s thought this was a particularly sort of beautiful lyrical way of, of saying things. It's just the way people, people spoke. Um, I think you would be quite surprised to discover that 450 years later we've, we've kind of held on to the very specific cadences. Um, but he, Cranmer is not particularly interested in, in cadence, I don't think. He's interested in Bible ideas and trying to find ways to, uh, to fix those into, into people's minds. Um, so uh, there are repetitive phrases which keep on coming around. You'll have noticed in the prayer book how uh, the focus on the heart of the Christian keeps on coming around again and again and again and again and again um, uh, in, in, in all sorts of ways. Um, that, that would be one example of a, um, something which is, is, is trying to connect with us emotionally. It is trying to do something not just on a cerebral level, but I don't think, I don't think because of beauty, um, it's more, I'd more describe it as, as passionate rather than beautiful. Um, lots of places where the heart would come over. Um, I, I don't think you can separate theology and liturgy um, because you remember that catchphrase, lex orandi, lex credendi, the way in which you pray reveals what you believe. If you want to know what a Christian actually thinks about God, just go and listen into their prayers. That's, that's really his, his interest. He's not interested in beautiful English. Well, I, I hear the eight o'clock buzzer. Yes? I'm just curious. Why does burning people at the stake become a punishment? Why 16th century is a very barbaric time uh, in all sorts of ways. So the death penalty covers a whole range um, of crimes. 
um, and uh, you could steal a chicken and you'd be hung. Um, so very different times to the, the ones that we live in. Um, but in response to the Wycliffeite preachers of the 14th century who were translating the Bible, remember, from Latin into English and going around these network of underground churches, um, the, the British government passed a law called De Heretico Comberendo um, on the burning of heretics. Um, so they were using that punishment from the 1380s onwards. Um, Wycliffe actually died in his bed. Um, he had a stroke at the age of 54. Um, but when this law was passed, they dug up his corpse um, and, uh, and burnt his corpse. And um, when, uh, when Mary Tudor came to the throne, uh, one of the things that she does is bring De Heretico Comberendo back onto the statute book. Um, as a form of punishment. Why? Um, well, it's, it's, um, it's clearly meant to partly um, be sufficiently horrific for uh, you not to want to follow that theological path. So it's, it's, a, it's a very clear warning. Um, but it, it's also trying to emphasise theologically that um, this is not just about life and death, it's also about eternal life and eternal death. Um, and because you are no longer following the path of the, the church, therefore you are excommunicated, therefore you're cut out of the kingdom of God, and when you die, um, you are going to be in the fires of hell eternally. Um, so this is a foretaste of what is actually going to come f for the rest of your eternal future. That's the way the, the church at the time saw it. Um, Um, some, yes, some have, have um, had hinted at that, that, you know, maybe when on the last day when the angels come, they won't be able to find your body to be raised. Um, but that's not a, not a very common theme because there's all sorts of martyrs right through the history of the church who have burnt at the stake. Polycarp, um, Bishop of Smyrna um, in the third century would be, would be one of those. And he was always considered a great hero. Um, so they were fairly clear that God will know what to do with your dust um, uh, on the last day. But it, it, it certainly comes around in the late 19th century when cremation um, rather than burial becomes a thing within the church. Um, and that takes a long time to catch on. Again, I don't know what the patterns uh, are, are like here, um, but certainly in Europe it takes a long time to catch on within the Christian churches and is more seen as a, as a secular thing. Um, the first Archbishop of Canterbury to be cremated, I think, was something like the 1930s or 40s, um, because burial was seen as a Christian option. Um, so they're, they're interrelated. Yep. But come back tomorrow if you want some um, grisly stories of people being burnt alive. <laughs> and we'll have some of those on Tuesday evening.